0: Hey, good morning. My name is Steve. Uh, I am the lead pastor here. We're going over to Romans 8 today. So if, if you have a Bible, go to Romans 8. If you're using one of the Bibles off of one of our pews or one of our chairs, we don't have pews. Uh, we're going over to page 944, page 944. Uh, if you're using your app, that's great. Just type in Romans 8. All right. Chapter 8 of Romans is the chapter of the Father's blessing, right? We've been talking about how uh, this chapter is is just the pronouncement of the Father's blessing over us, right? Um, this weekend, I, I did a surprise marriage conference. It wasn't a surprise to them, it was a surprise to me. Um, I wasn't planning on doing a marriage conference. I just got a call late Friday um, from Corey down at Heights, and he was like, Hey, uh, Raiden Hollis, uh, a local pastor, supposed to lead this weekend, but he suddenly got sick. Um, you jump in for me. I'm like... No. Yeah, but I did it. Um, and so, uh, I had a great time. It was actually, it's been a, it's been a whirlwind of a weekend, but it really was a great time. I did the marriage conference. Lauren jumped in and did the Q and A with me yesterday. Uh, and during the Q and A, I was asked a question that I love to hear. Um, somebody submitted a question that said, I'm struggling with sin and I just can't seem to break free and I'm growing helpless. And you're like, Steve, that's a really strange question to be one of your favorites. It's really not. It's really not, um, because, uh, uh, here's the thing that person is exactly where they need to be in order to grow. Often, uh, in the church, I mean, we, we, we celebrate victory and, and we kind of shame struggle. Well, that person's backsliding. They used to be so spiritual, but now they've just slid down, and I don't know what's wrong with them. And uh, th- that actually is a, a very uh, flawed way of looking at spiritual maturity, spiritual development, spiritual growth, uh, and an understanding of how the Spirit actually sets us free. Um, that guy, whoever that was, that gal, was in a position where they were desperately needy. Exhausted by sin, longing for change, and fully aware of their powerlessness. That's a great place to be. Uh, in fact, it's Romans seven twenty-three and 24, right? When Paul said, but I see in my members another, uh, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? That's what they're asking. Wretched man that I am, wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me? How will they do it? Romans 8 answers this question. Romans 8 digs in, right? How do I actually experience deliverance? Um, If you were to think about it, if somebody were to approach you and they said to you, um, hey, I'm I'm really struggling with uh, this besetting sin. I'm really struggling with this ongoing struggle. I'm really struggling. What advice would you give them? How would you advise them to be set free? How would you advise them to move forward? Would you encourage them to get an accountability partner or maybe a better accountability partner? Would you encourage them to take cold showers? Would you encourage them to do better and try harder? Um... Listen, that not only will not work, the problem is it'll often make it worse. Because our struggle with sin, at the end of the day, when we are struggling with that who will set me free, the solution to that answer is not more willpower, more commitment, more determination, more me. The answer to that question is not do better, try harder. The only thing that can deliver us from the power of sin is the same thing that delivered us from the penalty of sin. It's grace. It is the only thing that works. Everything else just rearranges the furniture of our hearts. Grace has the ability to recreate our hearts. The blessing of the Father is both freedom from the penalty of sin and progressive freedom from the power of sin. And because the Father loves us so much, He loves us exactly as we are, but he, leaves us, he loves us too much to leave us as we are. So we're going to be looking, digging in now, to the Father's blessing as we continue now in Romans 4. So let's take a look at our verses. We're looking at Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. For Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God. All right, y'all. Last week we did a deep dive into Romans eight one. Uh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Right? We looked at how this seems like an insane statement. <laughs> right? Um, I am a sinner. There is therefore now no condemnation. I am ungodly. I am therefore not rejected. Uh, I am a rebel and a traitor to my God. Therefore, I am not condemned. Right? The the cause doesn't seem to match the effect. Um, and and yet when we look at Paul's argument through the first seven chapters of Romans, we find that this apparently insane statement is actually perfectly sane. And in fact, it's totally logical when you understand that we uh, are following a God who justifies the ungodly. He doesn't justify the worthy. He doesn't justify the hardworking. He doesn't justify the successful. He doesn't justify those who pick themselves up by their own bootstraps. He justifies those who have discovered their helplessness, brokenness, and need and come to him with nothing but their sin and their faith. And when they come with their need and when they come with their trust, he gives them as a gift what they could never earn on their own through grace, he gives them the gift of righteousness. He gives them the gift of pardon. He justifies the ungodly. This is such good news, right? This is such good news. I, I've spent two weeks in it and I would love to spend another, but we're going to move forward. Um, here's the thing. I love this because we don't need to pretend that we're anything more than we are. We really don't. I have no need to put up a front. I have no need to create a religious image. I have no need for you to think anything about me or for me to try to pretend I'm anything I'm not. I I can just be an ungodly sinner who has been saved by grace. You know, I just need grace. I need to be justified by God through the work of Jesus. And now, having been set free from the penalty of sin, I can now humbly come to be set free from the power of sin by the work of the Holy Spirit in me from the inside out. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, right? That looks back to the first seven chapters of Romans. Verse 2 now moves us into this new argument. In Verse 2, he says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and of death. Uh, That is the first mention. The Spirit of life is the Holy Spirit. It's the first mention of the Holy Spirit in this chapter. You've probably read this chapter before. I don't know if you've ever noticed. This is the chapter of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 19 times in this chapter. That's one time for every two verses. That is more than in any other chapter of Paul's writing. This is the chapter of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned about 30 times in the entire letter. Two-thirds of those occur in this one chapter. It's a 16-chapter book. This is the chapter of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's easy to miss because the chapter is not about the Holy Spirit. Right? This chapter isn't teaching us who the Holy Spirit is or, or, or more about how the Holy Spirit relates to the rest of the Godhead. Right? There, there's, no, there's no in-depth teaching on the Holy Spirit, but he pervades this chapter. This chapter is about us. This chapter is about our receiving the blessing of the Father and our being worked on or or being set free through that blessing. But what becomes apparent is that it is the work of the Holy Spirit that sets us free. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring us into an experience of of the blessing of the Father. Right, The Father declared or or sent a, a, a mission to set us free. Right, The Son fulfilled that mission, and the Holy Spirit applies the victory of that mission to our lives, right? There's no way to understand our Father's blessing to us without seeing how it's tied to the Spirit's work in us. Um, When you became a believer in Christ, uh, you were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, right? You may not, you know, it's like, well, I don't don't feel anything. (laughs) Yeah, uh, you may not, right? Now, you probably felt something when you became a believer, But the Holy Spirit doesn't show up and reside in your emotions. The Holy Spirit takes residence in you. Now, exactly how that works, I don't know, okay? I don't get it. The Holy Spirit living in you, somehow you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, so am I, and we are together, because together we, as the church, are in fact the temple of the living God. All that stuff is pretty mysterious. It just is revealed to us, we know it's true, but the Spirit is in us, and it's the Spirit's job to lead us into the Father's blessing. Right? What the Son accomplished and what the Son won, the Spirit applies. The Spirit takes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and works it in us from the inside out. It's the Spirit's job to lead us into the transformation of grace. And He does that by setting us free from the law of sin and of death, right? Our verse tells us, "For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and of death." Now, what's all this talk about law? I get a little tripped up because this these four verses are, are very technical in their own way and, and pretty dense in their meaning. So, so what is this about the law of the Spirit of life and and the law of sin and of death? There's a rhetorical purpose um, that Paul is using for the use of the word law, no, the Greek word nomos, in, in these verses. Um, but for now, I just don't get tripped up by it, okay? Because law can mean slightly different things in slightly different contexts. We know that, right? There's the law of the land, and there's the law of gravity. Those are two different laws, right? Same word, same principle, but they mean slightly different things, right? The law of the land is a decree of rules, The law of gravity is a principle that controls power, right? So the Mosaic law is a decree of rules. The law in this verse is controlled on a principle that controls power. So we could, in fact, read this verse in this way, and it might help a little bit. For the power of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the power of sin and death. Now you're starting to be like, oh, okay. Yeah, that, that makes a little bit more sense, right? The, the power of the Spirit has overcome the power of sin. The power of Spirit of life, my connection with God, life, has set me free from the power of sin and death. Death is separation from God. The Spirit comes in and connects me to what I've been cut off from. It allows my disordered desires to become connected to the source of life instead of trying to pursue life outside of relationship with God. The power of the spirit of life sets me free from the power of sin and death. So the statement itself is pretty simple when we understand it in that way, but but why didn't Paul just use the word power? (laughs) He had that word available. Why did he use law in a technical sense to mean a principle that controls power? Well, he's using the word law nomos, the Greek word nomos, to contrast it to the ineffective power of the Mosaic law, right? Take a look at the beginning of verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Do you see the contrast? The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and of death because God has done what the law, the Mosaic law, Could not do because it was weakened by the flesh, right? The law of the spirit of life wins the battle. That the law of Moses was powerless to win. It wasn't the Mosaic law's fault. It just couldn't do it, right? The law is good, but it has no power to give life, right? As a set of rules uh, and as a covenant, right? God created this covenant with the nation of Israel. The Mosaic Covenant. Moses was the one who created it with the nation of Israel. And, and the Ten Commandments are, are kind of the marquee, right? They're the, they're the top ten, right? But There's 500 and some odd commands in this whole thing, right? And, and, and this law basically said, if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed, right? The law had the ability to condemn but it didn't have the power to help us obey, and what that means is that the law is a little bit like it. it comes on the outside of us. It's external to our hearts. It's external to our motivations, and so you can put these rules on me, you can put these laws on me, but it doesn't have the power to actually change the motivations inside um, inside that law, right? So it might change the external manifestation of my behavior, but it doesn't change the root of my motivations. It doesn't have the power to reorient my disoriented desires. It doesn't have the power to to awaken within me a responding love for God, right? It's a little little bit like somebody in the garden. Uh, When you see weeds, you're just going around and kind of chopping the tops off of them, right? You know the root is still under there, right? Now, if you're diligent enough to keep chopping the top off, it looks like there's no weeds, which honestly is a lot of what religion does, that's what a lot of, of our of our um, our discipleship models honestly are like that. they're just focused on making sure that you chop the weed low enough that it looks like it's not there, but it doesn't actually take the root out okay um, that's what the law does that's what rules do. They have the power to to conform the exterior without transforming the interior. It's, the law is a little bit like a glove, right You can put it on your hand now it, it can it can it can clothe the hand, but it cannot control the hand. The hand is still responsible for what happens, right? And so that's why Paul says that, that the law, while it was ineffective in transforming the human heart, was not wrong or bad. In fact, in another place, he says it is good and holy and just, right? The law is good. The problem isn't with the law, the problem is with the, the heart of man, right? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The problem wasn't with the law, the problem's with us. The law was an ineffective tool to fix us. And you're like, hmm. And we've already talked about this. God never gave the law to transform the human heart. We, you know, we twisted it that way. We used it for self righteousness. The historic Israelites did that. They, 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 they obeyed in certain ways and ignored the ways they disobeyed, and used it as a as a club to to beat others down and show how great they were. Because we do that with everything. That's our sinful heart, right? But God never actually gave the law to fix the human problem. God gave the law to make that problem known by making it worse. Okay, we, we've talked about that. Those are in previous sermons, but but God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law was powerless to transform the human heart, <clears throat> but the law of the Spirit of life, the power of the Holy Spirit can do what the law could not. The law could simply stand between us and God and condemn us. The Holy Spirit resides in us and can transform us, right? God did the work to set us free. Take a look at the rest of verse 3, right? For God is done with the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. The Father sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. It's interesting that, he, that Paul uses the term own son here. I, there's no great theological or deep meaning. There's no profound insight. It's just an observation. Paul doesn't use that phrase a lot. Um, John, John uses that. The Apostle John, um, thank you, emphasizes uh, the, um, the relationship of the father and the son and the intimacy of the father and the son. I just find it interesting that Paul uses it here in this context that the Father sent His own Son. It's a nod to the deep relational connection of the Father and the Son, the the shared cost of God the Father and God the Son in accomplishing our redemption for us. The Father sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now again, we've got to be really careful with the language here because Paul is being careful, right? It's very carefully worded. It doesn't say that he was sent in the likeness of flesh. Right? Jesus wasn't a fake man. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't like just kind of kind of looked like a human, but wasn't a human. Right? Um, he was actually human. He came in flesh. It doesn't say that he came in the likeness of flesh, but it also doesn't say that he came in sinful flesh. Right? He came exactly like us, but exactly as we were meant to be, not exactly as we are. He came in an unfallen human condition. He, he did not come in sinful flesh. We live in sinful flesh because we are children of our first parents. And we are born um, inheriting sin and choosing to sin. Jesus was born outside of that paradigm. He was not a son of Adam. He came as the last Adam right? There's a lot of power in the idea of the virgin birth. Adam wasn't his father. God was his father, right? And 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 part of the implication of that is that he wasn't born with the same broken, sinful nature that we have, right? He was not born in sinful flesh. He wasn't sinfully human like us. No, he was human like us, but he wasn't sinful like us. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, right? Very carefully worded. He was human, but he was human as humans were meant to be. He was like us, but he was like us as we were designed to be, not as as we actually are in our broken, sinful nature. He did not bring that sin. He didn't have it, right? Jesus didn't have internal disordered desires like we do. His desires were fully aligned with the mission and the person of his father. So he walked in submission to his father, and he walked in the power of the Holy Spirit at all times. There was never an internal conflict between God and the mission of God, the person of God. He, he lived delighting in God to carry out the will of his Father. So he was fully in line, right? And, and and what's interesting is that as a man, he even worked in the power of the Spirit because that's what humans have to do, right? Even though he was God, Jesus, the second person of the Godhead who created all things, what we find is that over the course of his life, he walks submitting to the Father, and carrying out the mission of the Father in the power of the Spirit. He is submitting to the Holy Spirit so that the Spirit will do the work of the Father through Him and in Him, because that's what humans do. He was human as we are human, but He was human as we were meant to be. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. What was His mission? What mission did the father send him on? What mission did the spirit empower him to accomplish? To go to war with our sin and to win by dying for our sin, right? That's what it says. He, by, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, that was his mission. He was sent for sin. He came to live the life we couldn't live so that he could die the death we deserve to die. He came to be our substitute in judgment. To take our place and to bear the weight of our cosmic treason before God. And to die. The Greek word here that's used for sin is the same one that's used throughout the Septuagint. Which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it's used throughout the Septuagint um, for sin offering. He came to be a sin offering. He came to offer Himself up in our place. Uh, Very much like the sacrificial animals in the Old Testament uh, that were just foreshadowing Jesus, right? They didn't take away sin. They were just foreshadowing Jesus, the one who, who would. God sent His own Son, Jesus, in sinless flesh so that He could become a sin offering for us. And when he did, Paul tells us, he condemned sin in the flesh. The end of the verse, right? There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You know why? Because Christ Jesus condemned our sin in his sinless flesh. He became, as he became a sin offering, he became the embodiment of our deliverance. He became human so that he could die in our place, so that we could become human as he is. To deliver us from our disordered desires, to deliver us from the penalty of our rebellion, to deliver us from from our cosmic treason, and then to deliver us into the new humanity that is being recreated in his likeness. This is why there's no condemnation for us. Because he condemns sin without condemning us. Our sin was judged. It was just judged in Him instead of in us. All right? So, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and of death. The power of, of the Spirit has set you free from the power of sin and of death. The, the Spirit has reconnected you to God where sin and death separates you from God. It allows your disordered desires to be realigned with God instead of the things outside of God, right? Why? Verse 3, uh, be, for God is done with the law. We can by the flesh couldn't do, right? The law couldn't do that, but God did it. And he did it by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin as a sin offering. And he condemned sin in the flesh, verse 4. In order that, all of that was done to accomplish this. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. All right, we're going to walk carefully through this verse. Again, I told you this is a complex, technical, dense section. Um, like much of Paul's writing. Um, what this verse tells us, that beginning phrase, in order that, it tells us that this verse is where the whole paragraph has been leading, right? It, it tells us that, that, that the Spirit did this, the Son did this, the Father did this with a purpose. Why did the Father send His own Son? Why did the Son take up the mission of becoming embodied in sinless flesh in order to become a sin offering for us. Why did the spirit of truth, the spirit of life, come and indwell us, right? So that um, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Let's take a look at that phrase, the righteous requirement of the law. So, the law that he's speaking of here is the Mosaic Law, right? The the codified law of the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law was unable to deliver us from the power of sin, but it had the power to condemn sin, right? It it had a power to call sin out. It had a power to show what was in true, true, truly sinful, right? It was a a representation of God's holy nature and his uh, perfect standards. It had the power to show us what was truly sin. Um, it is the covenant that God made between Israel and Sinai, right? Now, here's the thing with the covenant that, that we need to kind of remind ourselves. When we talk about the Mosaic covenant, when we're talking about the law, we're talking about a conditional covenant. You're like, what does that mean? It means that it was, it was a, a promise from God, hey, you can be blessed, but in order to take hold of that promise, you had to meet the conditions, right? The promise to us in Jesus is an unconditional covenant. Right, The new covenant that Jesus made is an unconditional covenant. Jesus says, hey, you can take hold of life, and you don't have to bring anything but your need. There are no conditions. You simply need to receive it by faith. Right? The Mosaic law, said, I'll, God said, I'll give you life, but there's a condition. If you want to take hold of life in this way, the only way to get there is by being perfect. You have to keep it in order to live. Right? Keep it and live. That's what he said. Keep it and be blessed with life. Break it and you'll be cursed, but keep it and you'll live, right? Now, here's the thing with this covenant. If if you broke one law one time, you were guilty of breaking the whole law all the time. There's no grading on a curve with the Mosaic covenant. It's not obey it more than you disobey it, right? It's not do... Your best some of the times so that you can overcome the times you do your not so best and achieve the worst the other time, right? It, it is it is it is one hundred percent achieved or it is one hundred percent failed. There's no grading on a curve. Keep it and live. It's all or nothing. It either blesses you or it condemns you. What did it demand for its blessing? Well, it demanded a righteous. Requirement, righteous requirement. Those two words come from a single Greek word in the original text. It's a single Greek word that honestly we've actually become very familiar with in our study of the Book of Romans so far. It's dikaioma, uh, and that may sound familiar. Dikaioma, I've I've mentioned it a lot. The root is deikai. It's the word that means justice. It's the word that that means um, righteousness. It's the word that means justification right the righteous requirement of the law is that we are perfectly just the righteous requirement of the law is that we show up righteous like 100% right spotless without flaw without blemish without any form of disobedience right we will be justified if we if we're justified by the law we'll be justified because we're showing up without any flaws. The law would expose them if they were there, and if they're not exposed by the law, we get to claim the blessing of the law. And of course, the problem is nobody shows up spotless. Only Jesus did. Jesus showed up spotless. Jesus not only showed up spotless, but then lived as a Jewish man under the Mosaic law perfectly and earned its blessing. He was the only human to ever actually accomplish the Mosaic law's demands. He he fulfilled the law and claimed its blessing, right? The, The blessing itself, the righteous requirement was perfect obedience. So that Jesus became human ultimately and died to condemn our sin so that, take a look at the next phrase, the law might be fulfilled in us. All right, so... Jesus fulfilled the law, right? He was a Jewish man. He was born under the Mosaic Covenant. He fulfilled the law. He was the first and only human to ever do so. And once he had fulfilled the law, he claimed its blessing. And the law was no longer in force because its blessing had been claimed, right? But what's interesting here is it doesn't say Jesus came so that he might fulfill the law, It says that He did this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. He's saying that Jesus became the sin offering, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve to die, became our sin offering. Why? So the, the law's demand for perfection wouldn't just be fulfilled in Him, but it'd be fulfilled in us. That funny language, fulfilled, it's a... I think we need to understand it in the context of covenant, right? Um, fulfilled, the, the Greek word pleuro means to fill up, to accomplish, to complete. It's contract language, right? If If you go to your boss and your boss says, look, um, if you're going to earn this bonus, you need to fulfill these expectations. You have to accomplish these goals, Right? Here's an empty cup right now, but by the end of the year I want it to be full of accomplishments and these specific accomplishments for you to receive this benefit, right? Somebody who fulfills a contract fills up the expectations and requirements, accomplishes the expectations. Now here's, here's the tension, right? Because we know Jesus did that for us. We know Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf. Now he's saying that Jesus died in our place to remove our condemnation that we might become the fulfillment of the law. Now this gets even crazier. Jesus died and rose not just to remove my condemnation but so that I might become the fulfillment of the law, so that I might earn the blessing of the law. Now It's really important that we pay attention to the preposition here. Really important. Notice that it says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, what's the preposition? In. Not by. In. Not by. It doesn't say the law will be fulfilled by us, meaning we have to do it to earn a blessing. It doesn't say it will be fulfilled for us, meaning that he's the one that did it and we just get the benefit. It says it will be fulfilled in us. What in the world? Hmm. All right, let's make this clear. Jesus died and rose again. He fulfilled the law. He claimed its blessing. He took your sin and removed your guilt. He took your condemnation so there's none of it left for you, right? Your sin was condemned in him. And there's no condemnation left for you, right? Jesus died and rose again to declare you righteous before God. That's justification. You have been declared right. But he also died to make you righteous. Not as something you have to earn, but as something you'll get to experience. Not as something you have to accomplish for God, but something God is going to accomplish in you. Are you following the language? The law here isn't a set of rules we have to obey in order to be worthy of our calling. The law isn't a set of rules we have to obey in order to take hold of a blessing. The law is an expression of what is right and good and holy and just. And God is going to fulfill that expectation in us. We're not going to, exp- we're not going to fulfill it for God. He's going to fulfill it in us, We were delivered by grace, right? We've, we've talked about that. We've been delivered by grace. The penalty of my sin has been placed on Christ and it is, it is no longer on, on me, right? And, and, um, and all I have to do is receive that grace. All I have to do is respond to that love. All I have to do is trust that promise to receive its benefit, right? Because I am saved by grace, through faith, I am declared right because Jesus was my substitute, died in my place and rose again, right? All I have to do is respond to that grace. How do we, who are no longer under the law, become what the law demands? Righteous. We do it in the same way we took hold of our initial salvation by continuing to respond to grace. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us, not our work for the Holy Spirit. It is the work of God applied to us, the power of God let loose in us, not our work for God. We responded to grace to be saved. We respond to grace to be changed. It is the work of the spirit of life. How, how do we become the fulfillment of the law in practical terms? In other words, how do I, an ungodly person declared righteous by the grace of God, become godly? How do, how does Steve, the one that is filled with disordered desires, become more like Jesus who has none? How do I make this progressive change in my life? In the same way that I got into this life. By continuing to respond to the love of God extended to me through the work of Christ, through the relationship I have with the Holy Spirit. Listen, this is, this is what I want to drive home. Because I think we just missed this. God wants you to Change. Right, There are some people that are like, hey, I'm forgiven. God loves me exactly as I am. That means exactly as I am is great. And that's just not true. Right? We are ungodly. So yeah, God loves the ungodly. But why would we want to stay trapped in our disordered desires? Why would we want to keep chasing life in ways that we can't find it? Why would we want to keep pursuing the fullness of life through behaviors that never lead us to the fullness of life, but only further enslave us to unhappiness and discouragement and frustration? It doesn't make any sense, right? We, we're, we're ungodly, but we want to be godly. We're, we're, we're broken, but we want to be whole. We're sinners, but we want to be righteous. Why? Not because we're afraid we're going to be condemned, but because we want to live. I want to experience the fullness and the flourishing of life. I don't want to keep running to broken cisterns and licking dust, pretending like it's water. I want to come to the fountain that is bubbling with the water of life to have my soul refreshed, to have my heart made new, to give me energy and life and power and joy that I might be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, and faithfulness, that's in there too. I always forget to put that one in there. The very things we want. Right? And I love even the language, the fruit of the Spirit. Those aren't your, those aren't our list of character qualities that you put on a checklist and, and you just do your best to try to, you know, accomplish those things or develop those things in your life for God. No. Fruit isn't something you work at. Fruit is the byproduct of something else, right? If you're walking in the Spirit, if you're relationally connected to the Spirit, if you are responding to the love of God, The fruit is what comes. It isn't your work for God. It's the result of your relationship with God. The Holy Spirit does it in you. It's not your work for God. Listen. Using grace as an excuse to continue living in sin is like being delivered from the insane asylum and choosing to continue to live in it. It doesn't make any sense. But listen. Being delivered from the insane asylum of self-effort? Like, okay, yeah, you're delivered by grace. And then getting down to the hard work of obedience? Like, okay, now it's all on me. I have to accomplish this for God. I have to do this to be worthy of That's just as insane. It's not my work for God. It's God's work in me. The righteous requirement of the law will be fulfilled in me by the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life in me as I continue to respond to the love of God, as I continue to be humbled by the grace of God, as I continue to be made grateful by the gift of God, the Holy Spirit delivers me. Grace set me free, and grace will transform me. What we're talking about is the difference between justification and sanctification. Two two $10 theological words, right? Justification is a word that means that I'm declared right. So when I believe in Jesus, I am justified. God brings down the gavel of of his sovereignty and says, you are not condemned. You are righteous before me. And once that declaration has been made, it is complete and it is irreversible. Right? When the God of the universe, who is the judge of all things, declares you right, you are right. Right? Because he can't lie. And he doesn't make mistakes. And he doesn't change his mind right? Justification, right? It's a beautiful gift that comes to us because Jesus died and rose again on our behalf. Sanctification is the progressive work of the Spirit delivering us into what we've been given in Christ. So it is the, the progressive change that takes place where I'm becoming more of what I've already been declared to be in my practical experience, in my day-to-day life, in my motivations, in my behaviors, in my interactions with other people. Sanctification is the process by which the Spirit of God is at work delivering me out of the power of sin because I've already been delivered from the penalty of sin. The Spirit does this. Now here's the thing, the Spirit does it, not through condemnation, but through conviction. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But there is conviction. Let's talk a minute about conviction because I want to help you understand that when the Spirit is progressively setting us, setting us free, He does it according to a plan that we can't see and on a timetable that we don't set. All right, so let's just establish a few things that, that I think are obvious. One, God had the ability when you became a believer to completely eradicate your sin. He had the ability, when you believed in Jesus, to completely set you free from the power of sin. He didn't do it. That means that God has a purpose for the sin that remains in your life. God uses what He hates to accomplish what He loves. But God, in that process, will choose which sins to progressively set you free from. How do you know where the Spirit is working to set you free. That's conviction. Conviction is the area the Spirit is at work to help you grow into becoming who you've already been declared to be in practical experience and not just in your position before God. I'm going to use an illustration that my pastor, Darren Patrick, used to use. I loved it. Um, I want you to take your finger, put it up, Put it in the soft spot of your shoulder and press really hard. Hard. I know it's uncomfortable. Push harder. Okay, if you were to do this for a while, you think you could think about other things? Pretty soon you're going to be like, this is all I'm thinking about. Keep pushing. Come on now. Come on. <laughs> all right, you can stop now. You're like, Steve, that was just torture. I know! That's exactly how it feels when the Spirit's at work. See, condemnation comes in like a blanket and covers us with rejection and shame. Condemnation comes in and says, you're worthless, you're a failure, you'll never improve, you'll never change, you'll never be better. Condemnation is the work of the law and the work of our enemy, Satan. Conviction. Conviction is very, very specific. Conviction comes in and highlights a specific area in our life. The Spirit will bring discomfort to a specific area of our life and make us more and more uncomfortable so that we have to pay attention to the sin that is there because that's the specific area the Spirit is at work to set us free. He's not condemning us. He's convicting us. He is making us progressively more and more aware of this sinful motivation, of this sinful behavior, of this sinful pattern in our lives in order to say, hey, this is it, man. This is the area where you need to discover dependence on me. This is the area where you need to come helplessly to receive grace in order to grow and change. This is the area where you need to discover How to be helpless. Because it's in being helpless that we find deliverance. It is coming with our need where we discover grace. It is when we stop working for God and start resting in the work of God that we start experiencing the power of God. Conviction works. Not by motivating us to fix ourselves, but by awakening us to the fact that we can't. And it creates within us a desperate helplessness where we come to God and beg for grace. Not because we're afraid we're not going to receive it, but because we desperately want it. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am, who will give me the power to do what I cannot do? Wretched man that I am, who will change me from the inside out? Because all I can do is try to change myself from the outside in. And I can trim the weed, but I want the root gone. It's killing me. That's conviction. And that's grace. It is God saying you're not condemned. The price has been paid. I love you exactly as you are. But I love you too much to leave you as you are. I will change you. I will transform you. I will set you free. Do you understand why I said at the beginning of the sermon why that guy was in the perfect spot to grow? See, that's how we get things mixed up. And we think about spiritual growth being the result of doing better and trying harder. When we see people struggling, we think they're just not doing better and not trying harder. And so the solution is for them to know more and do more. Here's some more things you need to do. Here's, here's some more truths you need to know. Here's, here's some more spiritual practices you need to put in place. Here are some more accountability structures. Here And here's the thing, I'm, I'm not saying that those things, if the Spirit leads you to those things, that they're bad. I am saying they're not the solution. It is not, a solution isn't going to come from outside working its way in. It's going to come from the inside working its way out. It's going to come from us finding humble dependence and relying on the power of God. And when we do that, the Spirit sets us free. Right? John wasn't lying. I mean, Jesus wasn't lying in John 15 where he says, you can do nothing apart from me. Right? It's a chapter all about bearing fruit and being fruitful in the vine. God is the one who trims the, the branches. And he's at work trimming the branches, bringing conviction, cutting away sin. But you can do nothing apart from me. You can't do this for me. But I will do it in you. So what do you do when you find yourself gripped by sin? What do you do when you feel that uncomfortable pinch of conviction? What do you do when you feel wretched man that I am? What do you do? Run to grace. Run to grace. Don't beat yourself up thinking somehow if you beat yourself up long enough, you'll be worthy enough to approach God. You know, we do that thing. I did that stupid thing again, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say bad things about myself. I'm going to abuse myself. I'm so stupid. I'm such an idiot. I don't know if I'm even a believer. I don't even know if God can save me. All right, Lord, I've beat myself up enough now. I feel I can grovel back into your presence. Here I am. That's penance. That's not repentance. Repentance is when we simply come into the presence of God, even in the midst of our sin. Even even when the sin grips your heart and you're moving toward it at the speed, the fastest speed you can go, you can't even in that moment say, God, here I am. I'm going toward this sin. I'm going to do this thing. Will you meet me in your grace? You're the only one that can change these desires. You're the only one that can set me free from this power. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Will you take my position in Christ and make it my practical? practical reality? Will you fill me with your love in a way that I am set free from my desire for this sin? Will you meet me in a way that transforms me? Conviction, not condemnation. The fruit of the spirit, not the works of the flesh. God's work in us, not our work for God. But here's the thing, that's the blessing of the Father. He will deliver us from the penalty of sin, and He will progressively set us free from the power of sin. All right, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer, and then we are going to share communion, and uh, then we're going to sing, and then we're going to have a baptism. Um, But let me pray for us. Father, we thank You that um, Your blessing isn't just the removal of a guilt but the gift of change. That we don't have to stay who we were. Chasing our idols. Doing things that that ensnare us and entrap us. Believing lies that raise our hope, but then dash it. Putting us on that cycle of diminishing returns where we're just pursuing short-term pleasure instead of, genuine soul revitalization. Lord, what we want is your love. What we want is the experience of your presence. What we want is is the infusion of your goodness. What we want is is your purpose to give us dignity and to crown us with glory. What we want is for your love to to communicate to our souls that we are worthy of being seen and valued. What What we want, Lord, is your presence to give us a deep soul rest instead of just the distractions that we run to, Lord, we want you. We want to be set free. And we come to you joyfully admitting that it's not our work for you, it's your work in us. And joyfully admitting that, that once again, all we bring is our need, all we bring is our sin, and that's all we need to bring. Because you love us exactly as we are. And man, you love us too much to leave us as we are. You will set us free. Give us hearts to respond. Give us humble hearts to come with with broken humility. Give us us humble hearts that can be lifted up with with the joy that is ours in Christ. I pray for my friends that are, man, they're, they're in the death grip right now. They're struggling. They're in that battle. Instead of feeling condemned, Lord, will you awaken within them the hope of the fact that they're being convicted? Instead of feeling rejected, alone, and like failures, will you give them the hope of recognizing that you are the God who justifies the ungodly and you are the God who sanctifies those who simply come in humility, seeking to respond to your love and be set apart for your glory? Lord, it's your work, not ours. Do it in us for your glory and for our good. And all God's people said, amen.